Welcome to another episode of Unsourced Wall. My name is Elvis, and as always, I'm your host. Now, this is going to be a very news-packed episode, but also I'm going to be doing a spoiler cast for Ant-Man and the Wasp, so there's going to be lots of spoilers and a lot of news as well does go into stuff that some people might be wanting to go blind into, especially a lot of movie stuff. So I'm putting all the time codes below. I also mentioned them right before I get into them. So keep that in mind if you're listening through this and you want to skip over some stuff, then look below. You'll see all the time codes. But first things first, let's get off into this right away. It is sad to say, but Steve Ditko has passed away at the age of 90 of what is supposedly a myocardial infarction and was found at least two days already dead within his apartment unresponsive. So that is honestly a giant loss because not only did he create and have a hand in creating so many well-known and well-established characters, but he was still creating up to this day on his own creator-owned work, which he always felt was more important and more meaningful to him because as not a secret and it's very well known that he was an objectivist. So his own creator-owned work he felt was a lot more important because it was owned by him, it was his own production and it was his own skills and talent being put to use. While he had a lot less fond remembrance of other stuff and more popular work for higher things that he had done that had really made his name among fans. Like there is this really funny story where Daniel Close, that he had done a two-page story about how he wanted to meet Steve Ditko and asked him if he was the comic artist, Steve Ditko, and just slammed the door in his face. One of my favorite Steve Ditko anecdotes, and I can't remember why I heard this, but I've heard this so many times, was that there was someone who wanted to track him down and meet him and sort of interview him. And he went there and he saw that Steve Ditko was using old original Spider-Man line art on his cutting board in order to get, in order to get his own creator owned published works at a good measurement literally just taking these things that people would bid like thousands for online and who would treasure and just kind of the shreds in order to get his own Mr. A and the hero comics in production. So honestly, that is just amazing. I have total respect for that just because there is a lot of things where someone would sort of put on a pedestal things like ROM or Blue Beetle and The Question. And for him, that's neither here nor there. He didn't have a lot of reverence for that work himself. And there's absolutely no reason why he should. If that's his prerogative, and a lot of people classify him as a recluse and sort of a hermit, very bitter. But I think that Kurt Busiek, in his remembrance on Ditko, made a very salient point that if Ditko had really been a recluse, then he wouldn't have put his name out in a listed phone number in the telephone book. Yeah, just not it. He was just a personality type that was a bit more reserved because that's the way he wanted to work. That's the way he wanted to act professionally in his everyday life. So that's fine. Even his most creative one work, I have to say that I love Mr. A. Not that I think it is the most entertaining or the most gripping work, but visually it is completely arresting and original. Going back and reading some Mr. A strips, it's just utterly fascinating his use of both negative space and the order that he puts all of these illustrations into. It's both very cold yet also insanely expressive while riding the line between sterility and just imagination. And that's like the best possible insane way of thinking about Ditko's work because you'd think that more or less of it would be somewhat along the lines of, say, Doctor Strange with all these fantastic and insane 
visuals but then you get down to mr a and it's very parsed down while also using that parsed down nature to really push the boundary of what the reader is seeing and how they process it so when you hear a story like someone going up to steve ditko and this is another anecdote i heard where a fan would go up and say i really loved your work on rom and he writes back i don't like rom i think it i don't think my work on rom was just not that great because it was too flourishy. There was too much visual noise in it. And that's fine for him to really sort of critique himself on that level. It's not really his own personal style. It was just the style that he knew that was the house style that would work, that would sell. And that's why you go to his intimate work and it's very, very ordered. I hear stories about him using stencils and compasses and rulers and protractors to get this real fine look to his work and that's what makes it so unique and so so interesting just to take in there are so many superstars and actors who were attached to various and ryan works because they all really do subscribe to objectivism but it feels a lot more self-serving but steve ditko he sort of just took it as an actual philosophy that wasn't very hypocritical about it he did his work for hire he didn't care about it and did his own creator own work that he put like a lot of his actual belief and soul into and I can respect that I live by it to the hill. Brandon is saying we should really take a critical eye on him for that, which is ridiculous. It really is completely ridiculous. For both his more well-known and breakthrough works and his more intimate and personal works, well, they'll still be remembered. I don't think there's any chance that Mr. A won't go down at least a section of comic book history just for how incredibly cleverly put together it is. But also because Alan Moore had a band, they wrote a song about it. And I'll put a link to that below because it's not a great song. It's not overall very catchy, but it is a pretty interesting song. And it's definitely worth a listen. So rest in peace, Dicko. Now going on to movie news, this is going to be spoilers for the Black Manta costume because a maquette of it has leaked. So, so you can skip ahead. If you just want no idea what this costume is going to look like, then please just look below, go to the time skip. Anyway... So we have the Black Manta costume, and honestly, it is pretty accurate. It's accurate in terms of that movie sense, where you have obviously a lot of armor, a lot of segmentation that you wouldn't see on the actual costume. But in essence, it gets it all pretty damn right. The helmet, I still think, is a weak point because I think it's just not conical enough. It feels too much like it's meant to actually fit on a face rather than just being this giant helmet that is huge sort of imposing presence. I think that... For all of its faults, Young Justice kind of did that pretty okay where it makes the neck, the head part, and then you can go all insane with the helmet. While this, the helmet is actually just meant to be more functional. And I think it could have been something where they went a little bit more with it without having to worry about actually seeming like someone could actually fit in it. In any case, it still looks really cool. Although the caveat here is that the DC movies haven't really had a problem with costume designs at all. I know people will have some issues about the Flash costume, but that doesn't mean like the movies are going to be any good or are going to be somewhat well-structured. So that's still up in the air. But speaking of DC movies, here's another spoiler skip. Look below for the time code. We have one of the first images of the Shazam movie showing Freddie Freeman and Shazam, Captain Marvel, outside of a deli drinking soda. And you can see behind them, the, the deli window was smashed. And overall, this looks like it's going to be an adaptation of the scene from Curse Shazam by Jeff Johns, where you have him and Freddie going out to a deli to buy beer because Billy is now an adult man. 
and they can do that, but then get foiled in their pursuit by a robber stealing from the deli, and then they conk him, and then the deli owner asks them, oh, thank you, what can I do for you? What do you want? You can have anything. And then just cuts to them, walking away with candy and soda. So that does seem like this is going to be that scene where you have the robber and probably some confrontation that leads to the smash window and them drinking soda. So honestly, Christian Zam is probably the best story they could use for an adaptation because it was clearly meant to be a, an adaptation Overall, Kirsten Zam is a very fun story, and it does have that really nice balance between being set pieces, being something that is very much meant to play to what is adaptationable, while also having enough personality and having an actual sort of backbone to it as a narrative that you can read and be satisfied by. We also have news from a Shazam movie where Jimon Hunsu has been cast as the wizard. Now, what was originally happening was that Ron Cephas Jones from This Is Us and so many other things was going to play the wizard. But apparently early on production, he had to drop out. So Jimon Hunsu was casted at the last second, but this was kept under wraps. It's not for reshoots. They haven't cast him and they're going to go back and shoot his scenes. They've already apparently shot with Jimon Hunsu. This is just something that's being announced way after the fact. Of course, this hasn't meant that people aren't taking this as, oh, wow, they recast, now they have to reshoot all these scenes, which is not the case at all. This is just something that they were keeping close to his chest and are now going out and saying, this is what happened, which is probably the best way to go about it, honestly. And so I hope that they still keep it in line with that Kershazam design because it's honestly a lot more memorable and a lot more distinct than most redesigns can be. And our last bit of DC movie news is that Apparently, they're finalizing a deal to go ahead with production on the Joker origin movie produced by Martin Scorsese and starring Joaquin Phoenix. It just seems like a pointless movie, but I see a lot of people saying that DC branching out with more standalones is a good thing. I have to agree. Standalone movies will always be better than universe tying movies because at the heart, a good movie is going to be a good movie and it's much easier to be your own sense of self if you're not having to behold to a lot of other bullshit that an entire universe of movies is going to be doing. Anyway, if they do go through with this, well, I hope that it, they know exactly what they're going to be doing with the origin because if they go in with this blind, then that's going to be hilarious. So in other television news, we have the Quantum and Woody comic from Valiant being optioned for a TV show. I have almost no hopes for this, mainly because I think that the recent Valiant series have been really awful. Now, I have to say that I am completely biased toward the Priest and MD Bright series just because it is so hilarious and it is able to balance that comedic aspect with the really horrific drama of it and that's really the reason why priest was always sort of bitter about how they promoted the series as a really comedic and very silly comic because to him it wasn't a comedy book there was something that he felt was a lot more than that so you have a lot of ads and promotion material calling it the worst superhero team and being very goofy about it and he felt that was sending the wrong message and i had to agree there are a lot of really hard-hitting issues that are intensely tragic and heartbreaking and, you know, then you have the Valiant reboot, which completely plays the comedic aspect of the hilt. And it tries to have dramatic beats to it, but just doesn't work because they don't really go as far as they need to with it. It just still comes off as very silly. But that's neither here nor there. I just hope it's more based on the Priest and Bright series because they have a lot more cool and engaging ideas than I've ever seen from anything of Valiant reboot. Fingers crossed for that, but I'm not expecting much. 
Same thing goes for the Why the Last Man series, which just got announced. So hopefully they are able to keep this in a very serialized and very momentum-charged tone because a lot of other comic adaptations that have something that is very much about an end goal and about sort of a journey don't know how to flesh that out and how to conform that with a seasonal arc. So hopefully that doesn't happen with this because I know that there's a lot of fans of this comic who have been waiting for any kind of adaptation for years. And best of luck to them. And straight on into comic news, we have a new static comic book from Reginald Hudlin with art from Kyle Baker set to start on October on a bi-monthly schedule. Now we have some preview images which I'm going to post right now and it looks pretty damn good. Now there are rumors that Hudlin is only going to be on the first arc which is a great thing because I think Hudlin is one of the worst writers I've ever had the displeasure of getting to with his works. If that's just the first arc then that's perfectly fine. Apparently, Baker is rumored to be taken over completely after that, so fantastic. And just the entire feel of it, the entire sort of care put into just giving us a sense of striking personality and a unique sensibility off the bat is incredibly appreciated. It doesn't look very house style, and that is probably for the best because it needs to really stand on its own. It needs to make a big splash. It needs to sort of return to what made the Milestone universe and the series of comics so different. And if that has to extend to even the art style, then that is for the best. And honestly, I think that combining the hood and the jacket with the old school Malcolm X hat is probably the best way they could have merged different sensibilities together. So this definitely has a good balance of what made the cartoon design memorable with what made the original design so striking. Apparently, Kyle Baker wanted to have the Malcolm X hat replaced with a Colin Kaepernick jersey because he felt like that would have been a logical update of the sensibilities without feeling too nostalgic or too hampered by an old school legacy, which is completely fine. I agree with him, actually. I just think that from a design standpoint, a Colin Kaepernick jersey just wouldn't look good because it would kind of overpower the rest of what other designs you could have put on him. So really, I think it's for the best to put the hat back on and just sort of go wild with the rest of it. He calls it the bane of nostalgia, and I can't really fault that. But overall, I'm glad they went with what they went with. And for our last bit of news, we have more Mind MGMT or Mind Management coming from Matt Kint in the form of a read-along play along album where he's actually put up a kickstarter for it and you have a vinyl album that you listen along to while you read along with it and it tells the story of the first immortal a minor important background character from the original series in the 60s and 70s and he has plans for more albums and for other kind of multimedia experiences in the mgmt universe I honestly just hope and wish that he would just reprint the second floor strips from the original series that never got collected because I think that's a really big shame that they never did since they do give a lot of backstory and it just felt kind of a rip even though the entire point of not collecting them was to make people buy the floppies. It does feel like those really nice and really well curated hardcovers that came out for the series are lacking something. So this is going to be breaking news where I'm going to be recording it and then splicing it in earlier just like I have several times before. But when something breaks and I really want to talk about it, I'm going to be doing this. 
And what's broken already is we have first new images for Glass, the third in the Unbreakable trilogy for M. Night Shyamalan. Now, we actually had the Glass poster premiere a couple weeks ago, but I just wanted to say that this is going to be another spoiler part. So look at the time code below if you want to go win fresh without looking at anything. But all right, so here we go. We have new images, one of Samuel L. Jackson in full glass garb sitting in his wheelchair, and he looks suitably ragged and aged. And then we cut to a different view of the poster, of the scene where the poster's imagery actually comes from, where all three are in an asylum while in therapy. It reminds me of those movies like Suspiria or Fan of the Paradise, which really play with color, that really do pop out of you and make an impression. And I really like that. I think that's a great sign that this is going to be something a lot more interesting. And it does separate itself quite capably from both Unbreakable and Split, which already had a divide between them in terms of direction. I was expecting something a bit more conventional, but then again, it makes sense that each entry of this trilogy does distinguish itself in some kind of way so i just really can't wait for this movie and i hope that it sticks a landing because if it does then it could really become the most consistent superhero trilogy that there ever has been because so you think about superhero trilogies they don't ever really work out that well meanwhile there's been a lot of acclaim for unbreakable split was very well received and it holds up as both its own thing and as a sequel and so really all there needs to be is for glass to just stick that landing and be enjoyable so fingers crossed and hope the m light doesn't just fumble out anyway that's it for the news let's head on into what i read this week first things first we have the return of the league of extraordinary gentlemen in the tempest number one of six this is the fourth main volume, but it is probably like the fifth if we include the Nemo trilogy and Black Dossier, and we should because the Nemo trilogy is an integral part of this series as we head into it with a lot of our characters and themes and choices being carried over from Black Dossier, Sentry, and Nemo. Honestly, I think that this takes the best parts of all the three that I just mentioned and finding a good middle ground to really work with the atmospheres and energy of them while leaving behind a lot of what didn't make those work. First and foremost being that it has actual stakes that are set up. It has an actual plot that is put into motion and real clever and funny energetic plot beats that are seated throughout which you can't really say the same for in Century which had no real stakes or sense of momentum because there was like 50 year time skips between the narrative and it just made everything fall flat and then you have Nemo Trilogy which had a lot of excitement and it had a lot of really fun and entertaining plots as a character piece it's fantastic but as something that fits in the larger universe it is missing that sort of outside world influence in it but this takes all of that and it does create a very funny first issue so i can't wait for the rest of this series and even then you have the back matter which isn't text pieces as it was in the original series but instead it is a six-part serialized homage to both british comic book superheroes and the classic team up of the justice league of america against starro with apparently the monster from the Quatermass experiment being in the place of Starro and just giving the entire backstory for events in Century while also being very distinct from it. And what that makes it is just not something that you can get bogged down into, but something that feels like a very nice throwback while also expanding and exploring things that weren't explored to the fullest earlier on. 
while the main plot goes back to stuff that was set up in Black Dossier and that was set up in the Nemo trilogy and brings it all together into one amazing little set piece and moment and I just can't stop smiling at it. And really one of the best things about this issue is that it takes something which I felt was still pretty hilarious and still really sort of out there and wacky and just a good time and that is their interpretation of James Bond. Now there are certain characters and certain franchises that Moore uses in this series which he doesn't really care about and he just uses for superficial qualities in his narrative. Something like Don Quixote or Harry Potter and James Bond where he just uses them for what he feels he needs in the story without really caring about what the plot was, what the characters are like, or anything about that. James Bond probably got the worst of it because while Harry Potter was still pretty hilarious and his role in the story was so well written in terms of just comedic little beats, there was nothing really done with James Bond that wasn't retreads of stuff that we've seen before in terms of critique on the character and the novels. And yet here he becomes maybe one of my favorite villains because he's such a hate sink. He is so dislikable. He's so detestable. He is just the most evil piece of shit and it is amazing. I love it. He's also pretty hilarious because you get pretty much just the evil League of James Bonds that he makes. He becomes the new M and he replaces the entire upper management for people who have replaced him over the years. So it's such an ego trip. He's such a completely unlikable and self-serving bastard. The entire subplot of him is put in the vein of old sort of spy comic strips at GovAtem mentioned Modesty Blaze. And honestly, that's perfect. And it is such an entertaining little aside. And I have to love it because it is so funny. Plus you have Orlando and Mina, the Judy Denchem, and all the things they confront. It's just a very lighthearted entry for what has usually or what has recently been a very downer of a comic. So that's a nice turnaround. There's still a very grotesque little twist that Moore does, but it's presented in a way that is a lot more of a well-meaning adventure story where you have to set up the villain and you have to set up what the heroes are doing and just get all these characters together and wrangle them all together. So there are lots of jokes in there alongside a lot of the more tense and a lot of the just horrific things, especially what James Bond does. And I love it. I really do love it. This definitely feels like they know that they're going to be ending. That this is the finale. So it does have a lot more of a catalyst behind it that other series and other volumes in this universe haven't had. Plus, the first couple of pages has a very funny little reference to the Legion of Superheroes. And I just can't stop smiling my ass off at that because they call them mutated brats because of their powers. And it's just, they just steal Brainy's time bubble and it's it's brilliant. It's a little brilliant thing. So yeah, five more issues. This is going to end by the end of the year. And I can't wait. Next up, we have Sideways number six, which is honestly probably the first issue that I have felt was disappointing since the first issue. Now, I felt that the first issue was very light and that sort of healed over by subsequent issues, but it still didn't have a lot of character focus in it that would have tied it all together. It felt very introductory without having a lot of weight behind it. And this feels very much the same, despite it being a very weighty and dramatic issue. A lot of things are merely said and stated rather than explored or made meaningful. And it is the classic Uncle Ben moment of this Spider-Man knockoff sideways character who I enjoy. But it feels like this is a development that could have happened way later, like maybe four or five issues later. And yet you have the 
very distinct impression that because this is number six, because it's going to be the last issue of the trade, they felt it had to happen here to get people to buy the second trade. It feels very sort of cold and clinical and it does carry through. But anyway, I hope that the next issue, which starts off the multiverse hopping arc, is able to weather this stuff better because it could end up being like Phantom Stranger where the first arc of that was a lot of great ideas, just not so much great character exploration or delving but that ended up being a really great series that ended up being able to do all those things after it had gone through all the growing pains so hopefully sideways stays alive long enough to see itself mature a little bit in terms of how it handles and how it develops these moments in the future i just want to get to this one immediately with superman number one by brian michael bendis and i know that i defended aspects and some contexts of the Man of Steel miniseries, but this is just undefensible, if only for just how it's structured. Because I said before about the Man of Steel miniseries where a newcoming reader who doesn't really know that a lot of Bendis' quirks can be insanely lazy and want to be clever, but then you have this issue, which I can't fathom anyone really being entertained by because it is so slapdash and sloppy and just uncaring about how it actually reads. The most notable thing being that it takes like five or six pages for one piece of dialogue and one point to be made because it keeps interrupting itself for these very forced and saccharine splash pages of Superman saving people. I'm not saying that Superman saving people is bad. I'm just saying that utilizing them like this is very obvious that you're trying to have some sort of sentiment. But that doesn't work if it's played so annoyingly. Allow these two characters to talk, all right? Just allow them to get this fucking dialogue done. You can't be like, Superman is talking to Ashton Hunter. They say two things, but of course, being Bendis, it takes an entire page to say either one or two lines. Then Superman says, one second, splash page. Then they go back saying, what were you saying? I was saying this, one second, splash page. And again, and again, and it becomes so fucking annoying. And it is the worst thing I have ever read in months. And I've read some real horseshit in months. So I am not going to be following this series just to review it again because it is just so horrible and I can't imagine that this is what we're going to be getting for the foreseen future. Ridiculous. It's ridiculous. You even have Martian Manhunter telling Superman that he has the right and the responsibility to take over the world because of who he is. And that's just so fucking horrible. Like, what are you even doing? It really is just such an unentertaining and very aggressively annoying read. I'm gonna just let it rest. Now we are up to the spoiler cast for Ant-Man and the Wasp. Again, go to the last time code if you want to skip over the spoilers because I'm not gonna be holding back on this. Alright, so it begins now. And first, let's go off with a question from at sunglass pre on twitter and their question is how did i like the antagonist's redemption at the end they had heard from some people that they complain about it but that sunglass pre personally thought it worked great with the movie's main themes and i'm of two minds about this because on one hand i agree with the people who are complaining about it but on the other hand i agree that it does work with the movie's main themes but where the divide is is that for me at least the antagonist, Ghost and Bill Foster, played by Lawrence Fishburne, are nothing characters in that they have all the semblance of characters, but where they exist is mainly in exposition. They don't really have any kind of real delible scenes outside of maybe one or two moments, and it feels very sort of forced. And it is forced, honestly. You have things like Janet coming out of nowhere with magical solution hands 
honestly, that's not something that's set up all that great. They do make the case of Ghost being very sympathetic. But again, it's not something where we're seeing her being sympathetic. We're just that we're shown in her backstory that it is so tragic and depressing that it's meant to make her sympathetic. While Ghost in her actions throughout the movie is just sort of a regular villainish kind of character. There's a point where she wants to threaten Scott Lang's daughter and she has to be talked out of it. Honestly, that's not something that endears her. Although you can say, I understand why she would do that. And it makes sense why she would feel forced or where she would feel that her last chance of recourse in her plan to save herself. But then again, it's like, I don't know. It doesn't feel so capped off. It's just a lot of exposition about their backstory to give the audience the proper notes and beats for the characters. And then it just sort of tapers off at the end. It doesn't feel like a conclusive ending either way. It feels much more like set up for Ghost in either Ant-Man 3 or for some other use within the mcu where they just really do run off screen and out of the plot at the very end and then they only get like one small little line pickup in the after credit scene and it just feels incomplete and that's my main complaint about the movie ghost redemption does not work for me because it doesn't have the satisfactory payoff and build up to really make it a great moment and it could have been i can see where they're going with it so to answer your question sunglass I'm not saying that ghosts deserve to not have the happy ending. I just feel like it could have been done a lot better. But it just feels very slapdash and very messily put together. And that's the biggest disappointment for me with this movie. When I liked the movie, and overall, my thoughts in the movie are that it has a lot of good things. Let me just list off the things about it. You have you have both the sensibility of the humor and of the lightheartedness carried over consistently from the original. This definitely feels like a sequel. It doesn't feel like it's beholding to anything in terms of style or atmosphere. It's not some sort of horrible Frankenstein's monster like the Captain America series was. It feels very much Ant-Man 2. That's perfect. That's great. I can totally get behind that. And then you have the side characters are still very memorable. They have probably the most memorable scenes of the movie. Hank Pym and Janet and their whole subplot is really good. Except for the ending where Janet has magical superpowers that heal people and save the ending. The negatives about this movie would be that for a movie that's about Ant-Man and the Wasp, it's more about the original Ant-Man and the Wasp than it is about the leads. And the leads themselves, they don't feel like a team. They don't feel like a pair at all. They have maybe one real scene together where they're working together and the rest is very distant and separate in terms of both a professional relationship as partners and as a romantic relationship. It kind of falls flat a lot because of that. There is really no romance in this movie, which is a shame because it needed romance. It really did. It should have been a very romantic movie where you really do buy that these people love each other and that they end up together both as a couple and as superheroes. But there's nothing. And that's a holdover from the original, honestly, I believe. Because in the original, they just sort of end up together at the end as a joke. And that's funny because they have that tension between them and it just comes out of nowhere as like a little button for the movie and it's great. But in this, you actually need to show that. A lot of it is tell, but don't show. You have characters saying, oh man, they were in love, but now they're on the outs. Or she's trying to trust him, but now they're on the outs and she's timid. The people actually tell the audience this face front. There's no avenue for the characters and for the actors to actually sort of have that go on and have that chemistry. And the only one who really sells it is Hank Pym because of his exasperation about Scott supposedly being in love with his daughter. And that side of it is sold brilliantly that you can almost believe that there's more going on between Scott and Hope than there actually is in the movie. 
But overall, that really does drag the movie down a lot because it feels like they aren't telling you a real story. They aren't telling you or showing you a real character arc between these two heroes. It feels not so thought out and not so fleshed out. And that's a really distinct downgrade from the original, which was one of my favorite MCU movies because it was such a nice, solitary, and well-honed final product. It felt like it could have been completely about itself, and that's why I love standalone movies. So I hope that there's Ant-Man 3, because I hope that this series is able to get off on a better foot than just having this one, which felt like a lot of disappointing things put together that they could have done so much more with. Instead, it's more about Hank and Janet and how much they love each other. And if the movie had been about them, completely about them, it would have been great. Because Michael Douglas and Michelle Pfeiffer sell it completely. They sell just how weary and seen it all they are as characters and heroes. Overall, it is just nice to see a story where those two have a happy ending. And I know I'm going to bring up the end credit scene right now. I think that's probably one of my favorite end credit scenes. Just because it's not something that you really need to care about in terms of where it leads to in Infinity War. And it doesn't really take away from where things can head in Ant-Man 3. Now they've gone through this horrible thing where one of them dies temporarily and then comes back. In Ant-Man 3, you can have a lot more of a committed and a lot more of a strengthened bond between them because now they know that they don't have that much time together or that things like this are fleeting, so they put more and more effort into it. It's something that you can build off of character-wise without detracting from it plot-wise, like Civil War did with taking Scott out of it and then having him put into this new situation that I think really hampered the movie a lot because then you have this time limitation on the plot. In this one, you have 24 hours, so a lot of things are rushed and obviously a lot of things don't get explored as much as they could have. But overall, it's decent, but it's definitely on the lower half rung of where my MCU rankings are. That's a shame. Oh, and we have a comment by at Mitch Gosser who tweeted under my call out for comments and questions that they felt like there was a lot more emphasis on San Francisco in this one that didn't really exist in the original. And I had to agree with him because I did not get that the first Ant-Man movie was set in San Francisco at all. And then they had pointed out to me that the Golden Gate Bridge is in one scene and it's on the poster. And I felt like, what? How did I miss that? Because the Ant-Man movie it uses the setting as more as just a generic city. And then in this one, you see a lot more San Francisco landmarks like the zigzag street, the bridge, so many other little things that San Francisco residents will be able to get. So it's pretty interesting that they really did lean into it more than they actually had at all before, which is fun. I actually like that a lot. And also the Tim Heidecker cameo, I think, will hopefully lead to another great episode of On Cinema. His parody movie review show with Greg Turkington because there was a brilliant episode that they had where you had Tip Heidecker who had a cameo as Reed Richards' dad in the Fantastic Four movie from Josh Trank and you had Greg Turkington as Scott's manager at Dunkin' Donuts in the first anime movie and so they're on cinema review episode was all about them being very petty and very catty toward each other for being both of these movies and it was amazing and i'm gonna link it below as well because it's something you have to see and it is hilarious and just the best thing that come out of anything related to the marvel cinematic universe now that tim heidecker has been in this one i hope for a pseudo sequel to the episode 
Anyway, let's head on to listener questions. We have one from at the Ivanhoe, and their question is, I used to follow DC Comics quite zealously, but a few years back, I kind of fell out of it. Thanks, New 52. My question is, what are the series from the Rebirth Initiative that you think are worth getting into? And obviously, I've mentioned things like Great Hood and the Outlaws, which ended its Dark Trinity arc this week very kind of sloppily but it's still a great arc so that was definitely one and you can read up to this issue and get a semi-complete story about what it was going to do and i recommend it completely wholeheartedly and i've also heard really great things about green lanterns the buddy cop book with simon baz and jessica cruz there's also deathstroke from christopher priest who's very sort of iffy on it there are parts and are very character-centric story beats that are fantastic. And there are things that he really does fumble. But it's still worth a read, especially if you love the character and pretty much all the other characters under his umbrella. Because it does some really interesting things with it. Also along with Super Sons, which did end. And like I mentioned, it has an upcoming sequel miniseries coming out. So that's also very fun. It's not very deathy, but it's a very light, very comfortable read. And you can get through it in no time and still feel very very nice about yourself other than that there's not really much else outside of of course new superman which did end and i recommend that as well so sum up red hood and the outlaws green lanterns super sons deathstroke and new superman anyway that's it for this week as always i want to say thank you for everyone who has listened who has supported given feedback given questions Week to week, it means so much. And thank you to the Ivan Hobe, to Mitch Gosser, to Sunglass Pre for their questions and for their comments. I'm forever grateful. And if you have your own questions or comments that you want to hear on the show, I put up a call weekly on my Twitter at T-H-E underscore S-N-I-C-K-M-A-N. As always, a grateful immortal thanks to at D-O-T-E-M-C-E-E for the cover arts. It is amazing. And I am wowed every single time. And I know I forgot to mention this at the start, but this has been the third month anniversary of this show. And it has never stopped being fun to do. Editing can be a hassle, but overall, I enjoy recording and I enjoy having you join me on this journey. Thank you and see you next week.